While many of us came to herbalism later in life, there are those who found the medicine of plants early on and made learning using and sharing that medicine a career. Today we're talking with Demetria Clark, author, doula trainer, herbalist, aromatherapist, and director of Heart of Herbs Herbal School about her early awakening to herbalism and the very path on which it's taken her. Now here are your hosts, Candice Hunter and Sue Sierra Lupe. I'm Candace Hunter. And I'm Sue Sierra Lupe. And, and welcome, welcome to, to Real Herbalism, Herbalism Radio. Radio. So today we get to talk with Demetria Clark. Hi, Demetria. Hi, thank you for having me. Welcome. We are thrilled. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's amazing that we got to talk to you. I mean, you just published a book, you're out there teaching, you're not... I mean, you're in like Florida right now. School. Yeah, you've got a lot going on. I'm glad you could pencil us in. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. (laughs) So tell us how you started in herbalism. Well, it's kind of a, it may sound a little trite, but I don't think I really had a choice. (laughs) I (laughs) I always joke that I didn't find herbalism. Herbalism found me. Um... I was really fortunate to be in an environment when I was growing up where my mom was kind of into that kind of stuff, more in the whole foods, natural kind of uh, diet. But then also we moved a lot and we lived a lot of kind of exotic locations. So we lived in coastal areas in Alaska, Oregon, you know, and then I lived in I think it was about 17 places by the time I was 15 years old and so I had always been lots of places and met lots of people and lots of people do really interesting things from different parts of the world with food and herbs and that kind of stuff and then I was plagued with chronic migraines as a child and I didn't realize what I was doing could potentially be dangerous but I found my own remedies in the woods because I had read some book about a girl that did, you know, it was like one of those kids who was like, (laughs) so-and-so did it in some book, you know, I'll just go Go find a plan. Yeah, I was kind of one of those kids that just kind of was fearless. I was a fearless, fearless girl until I had children of my own. And then I worried about, you know, (laughs) my children growing up safe and strong. So, but I was, you know, one of those things where I didn't really have a choice. It was just something you know, that just occurred and happened. And when it sounds I was almost like a calling. Definitely, definitely a calling. But I also had a very weird idea about it, too. And it made me in some ways kind of unpopular in my herbal community for a while because I felt like I should be able to make a sustainable living and raise my children and do all this kind of stuff when I guess that wasn't really fashionable. So mm-hmm. it's kind of I been an interesting journey yeah Yeah, you came up before the commercial herbal boom as it were yeah yeah I mean I had a herbal products business online in 1996 so that is impressive right there yeah the fact that you had anything online in 1996 (laughs) yeah I'm glad when I got my my url for my email (laughs) my name so you know I mean but it's like one of those things where I just kind of always viewed things differently. So it was always um, it was always something that was obvious to me, like, oh, you need to do this. But I, when I saw the people who were around me who did that, I said, oh, wait a second. I, I don't want that paradigm. Not that it wasn't a good paradigm. I just 
I didn't want to work two jobs to be an herbalist. I wanted right, right. being an herbalist to be my job. Right. And so I kind of went from there. But I also had friends that ran the largest aromatherapy, essential oil, and herbal import-export, one of the largest companies in the U.S. at the time. They supplied, like, Frontier and all these other Liebermoth? herbal... Hmm? Liebermoth? No, it's called Atar. It was on the East Coast, and they were my neighbors, and nice. they would always answer questions for me when I was, like, in fourth grade. Like, so what does this do, and what do I use? Probably just were crazy. But, you know, I thanked her in my first book because, in reality, I wouldn't have, you know, those four years that I was really good friends with her daughter or however long it was, that helped formulate the rest of my life. And it sounds like you've had a lot of being in the right place at the right time to be on the cutting edge of herbalism. Yeah, I don't know if it's that or just dumb luck. But <laughs> just Either way, it's, it's worked out well. You've even had an opportunity to do a lot of studying internationally, right? Yeah, we've been to 22 countries as a family. Um, we homeschool. So I homeschool also. My two boys are now... In college, my 17-year-old is starting college this spring, so it's really exciting. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it's like one of those things, well, if I'm going to teach my kids, I've got to teach myself. And the funny thing is, being an herbalist opened more doors to me all over the world because everybody knows what that is. Yeah, mm-hmm. We may not necessarily always know what it is, but someone in Belize, if we're trying to find, like I'm looking at a plant and I'm like, okay, what's the Latin name for that? I say the Latin name, they know, they know the Latin name, and suddenly right. we both are able to communicate about this plant through gestures, jumping up and down, or whatever, <laughs> because they themselves are also a professional in this field, even though we don't have a common language between us, maybe. Well, in Belize, they speak English, but um, talk Egypt, Turkey, right. you know, Greece. The reality is, is that we were able to find a way to communicate, and so... We learned, and then I formally and informally studied with people in all different countries, different walks of life, different philosophies, because I don't think there's one right way. Yeah. I don't think there's one philosophy, one tradition that's any better than anything else. I'm really of the philosophy of what works for you and what works for your family. Mm-hmm. Stick with that. You know, yeah. it's okay to be comfortable with that. You don't always have to uh, torture your body to find great results you can yeah you can love yourself into them too so. when i was growing up in the 70s and 80s i always had this impression that people in not america had a much more healthy relationship with the medicine of plants and with natural remedies in addition to perhaps allopathic medicine as we know it today but or as we knew it then but but there was a much i always had this idea that it was there were the natural approaches were more respected than they were in America. Did did you find that to be true through your travels? Yeah, I mean, obviously there's pockets where they aren't. You know, we lived in Switzerland for a few years, and if the kids were sick, I would go to an apotec, which is an apothecary, and I would just start saying, I need this, this, and this, and they'd look at me like I had three heads because I knew the Latin name and I wanted it as close to plant as possible. Right. And they have all these wonderful herbal products. They're like, but you don't have to do it yourself. <laughs> we have it here for you, you, you Philistine. But the reality is, is that um, 
you know, there were a lot of options. There was more uh, herbal remedies, even though they were packaged and prepared and presented, they were there. Um, the same with uh, homeopathic and then allopathic medicine. And so the reality is, is there is a, there is a healthier respect for, I think, unfortunately, when you start going to some third world countries where there is a really deep tradition, as the globalization sets in, as, you know, it becomes a commercialized economy, these countries are going to be dealing with the issue of this is now bad because it's old fashioned, because it's this, because it's that. And I, I hope that we find a way to preserve the integrity of people's belief systems and their remedies without completely destroying it and saying, no, no, you don't need that. Take this drug. Like, I hope we can find some kind of balance that we've obviously missed in the United States. Yeah, I think that might be in part why the United States has the health care look that we've got, is that as medicine was becoming more allopathic and science was beginning to really rule over medicine in this country, we started turning away from the old ways like they were bad, rather than saying they're complementary. Absolutely. And I think there's a big, you know, if you, I don't know if you've ever looked at old um, ads talking about uh, midwives or, or people who practice herbalism or mountain medicine. And there's always like this, you know, come get this beautiful, shiny thing that'll make you feel better because you don't want to be like, you know, and it'd always be like some toothless woman. Yeah. <laughs> Grandma Clampett. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was always like, yay, I don't know what she was swigging out of that bottle, but Grandma Clampett should have marked it bad. But, I mean, <laughs> the reality is, is that we, we have, <clears throat> we don't want to continue this path of making herbalism or midwifery or natural healing a class thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or yeah. Um, something that we, oh, well, I'm so much more educated because I use herbs instead of looking at things from a different perspective. One of the things that makes me unique for some reason, I don't understand this, but it is, I am kind of unique this way. I have a really, really huge diverse body of students. And I'm not talking about just color or religion. I'm talking personality types. Like I'm talking, you know, there at one point there were six truck drivers who were all taking the class. And this was in the early 2000s, late 90s. And they would do their homework with each other over their CB radios and talk about it. And I bring this up at an herbal event once and people were looking at me like I had lost my mind. Truck drivers don't, they're not into that. And that's what keeps, (laughs) that's what keeps, um, herbal medicine from growing because we as the practitioners and we as the educators, we limit who we think should learn this, these secrets, not all of them, but you know what I'm saying? There is kind of this class thing. And so that's kind of like, you know, my husband always jokes, if someone's an old man and has a problem with his hemorrhoids or kidneys or anything, he's going to find me in the grocery store and be like, Hey, young lady, do you (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it's like no joke. I mean, like I, people just kind of look at me and they, they see this like, I don't know, chubby pink cheeked lady who looks like she probably needs a nap and 15 more hours in the day. And they're like, Hey, I'm having a problem with my back. Do you have, they won't even know who I am. Do you have any suggestions or, Oh, my kids are really constipated. I'm just standing there sometimes like, 
what is going through? I have a light over my head that's like, ask me any question, especially if it has to do with poop or digestion. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All I've had those conversations. Yeah. So, I mean, the reality is, is that I, I want in my work to make herbalism more accessible. Mm-hmm. And I live in a community that's very diverse as far as race and religion and bring bring the fact that these things are not dictated by race, religion, or color Mm -hmm. or anything like that. Herbalism really has to do with you and if you think it's cool and if you want to participate in it. And we shouldn't be disenfranchising or marginalizing because we think someone doesn't fit the mold of who the perfect student is. Yeah, right. I like that inclusive approach. One of the things that I found that we, at least in America, and I I do it myself regularly too, is we start to try to classify things. Oh, that's Native American medicine. Oh, that's Western herbalism. That's Eastern herbalism. You know, that's aromatherapy. I mean, honestly, how is aroma, in some ways, how is aromatherapy really different from herbalism? You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, well, I mean, there's a lot of scientific parts that are different, right. but the reality is it's plant medicine. Yeah, that's, that's what I mean is plant medicine. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you. And it needs to be accessible to everybody working in that free clinic. We have a huge population we deal with that are unhoused. And for the most part, this clinic that I am in, that's their introduction to herbal medicine because herbs have been expensive and inaccessible for anybody but the upper and working classes for a long, long time because it's just, it, it costs too much. And if you go into the store, the people that work there aren't allowed to give information about it. And if you're unhoused or if you're the working poor, you don't either have the time or the money to or they spend act like on they the classes. Or anyways. Yeah. Or they what? Or they act like they don't want you in their store anyways. Right. Well, they, yeah. they legally can't. They can't yeah. say it. Or they'll get yeah, sued. Yeah, no, but I mean, when, we, when we first started, we were so, we were so poor, mm-hmm. uh, my husband and I. And I would go into a store and I would, you know, I just remember being like, I can never, ever be like this. Right. I could never make someone feel less than oh. because they're mm-hmm. asking a question. Right. And so that, that experience is one of the experiences that led me to make sure I don't act like that. I'm sure at times I do. I'm not saying I'm a saint or anything like that because it's human nature. People act the way they act and they try not to. But I think that herbalism can be so much more if we stop limiting ourselves and open our eyes. Mm-hmm. Everybody yeah. deserves care. Yeah. One of the things I like about your approach is what you've called evidence-based medicine. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that? Well, so everyone always says things like, well, there's nothing in science about herbalism. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, and I'm like, really? Have you not read this study from India or this study from Sweden? Or, you know, come on, you know, like there is, there's lots of ways to get evidence. There's lots and lots of ways. I mean, either your evidence is for yourself, 
you try it and it works. And this worked yeah. for me and that's something you can share and that's your evidence. But there's also lots of different studies out there. Yeah, I mean, there's we, an explosion of it now. There's a total explosion in it. But also there was, I mean, a lot of that is is also an American-centric thing. When people were traditionally saying that, they were saying, well, they didn't do that study in America. You know, wow. it's like, well, <laughs> wait a second. Um, you're trying to tell me that... Someone someplace else doesn't have similar protocols for doing a proper study. And, you know, so it's, it's really always interesting to me what we're willing to accept as evidence from, say, a pharmaceutical company. Mm-hmm. Even though they're, I mean, you know, as we joke in my family, if something causes a problem with your erection and anal leakage at the same time, <laughs> like this is not going to be making life better for anyone. And so the reality is, is that we'll accept those as evidence, you know, 485 people die a year from blah, 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 whatever drug or something. And we'll accept that as evidence of something working, but someone will say, well, you know, I have shingles and I use this lemon balm tea and it really helped a lot with some of the pain and the itching. And someone will say, well, is there a study on that? Mm-hmm. Well, I just and told you. There is. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I know there is. But, there, you know, the, the funny thing yeah. is, is people will always say, well, prove it to me. Mm-hmm. Prove it to me. And But we don't ask other people, you know, to prove things always. And so I think right. that when I say evidence, I'm also talking about, look, we need an equal playing field here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you're getting like, you know, $50 million a year to study something. If you want evidence about this plant, maybe you should invest in that also. Right. Yeah. People should be asking for evidence about everything. There's so much bad news out there. You know, you look at sites like Real Pharmacy or what's the other one that's always full of I don't look at them. I don't remember. Don't look that. at them. Yeah. They're full of poison. But there's just I don't look at them. I, it's I junk. It's junk news. Know? It's junk science. And the thing that I I I get so frustrated with is people look at one thing and then they share it all over the place and it's garbage. They're just perpetuating myths that damage either herbal medicine or the faith the faith in herbal medicine or or, you know, anything connected with how their body works at all. Absolutely. It's, well, you know, if it's on Facebook, it's got to be true. Right. Yeah, <laughs> of course. One of the things I like about the idea of evidence-based medicine is that it opens the door to looking at medicinal traditions that have been used for centuries upon mm-hmm. centuries. Like, for instance, rooibos tea creates peace of mind. The Aboriginal people will tell you that they've known that since time began. But, you know, within the last three years, I believe it was, they finally did a scientific study and announced with triumph, guess what, everybody? Rooibos tea creates peace of mind. And they can explain which molecules are doing what. But the fact is the evidence, that study is one more piece of evidence in a very long chain. Absolutely. That's one of my favorite teas. I'm kind of glad that you said that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I how love you, it. How do you use it? Just because you like the taste? I would use it if I had a bathtub when I was stressed out, like down where, you know, like I would yeah. literally bathe in it. Oh, um, God, but I love beautiful. to drink it internally. Mm-hmm. 
you know, um, when I'm stressed or, or tired or it's like motherwort, but mm-hmm. not as strong for me. It kind of takes that whatever is binding me up in the, you know, chest and I'm tight and it just kind of lifts it off, you know, when yeah. it's Thanksgiving and you get a, you know, a letter <laughs> the day before Thanksgiving from your publisher saying, we'd like to have this after the holiday or, you know, <laughs> or something like that. You're like, okay, okay, put the kettle on, you know. So yeah. the reality is, is that, you know, there's a reason why. There's a reason why in kitchens throughout the world we find certain things. Yes. So the the Rolls-Royce tea, why we find basil, why did the, why did our ancestors who came from Europe or other places to the United States, why did they bring certain herbs with them? Yes. They didn't just bring them because they're like, we need a really good pasta sauce. <laughs> well, especially yeah. some of those herbs that you can't just carry seeds. I mean, time is really hard to start from seeds. They work to bring that over here. Absolutely. And like, so why was it just a flavor? I love that when people are like, you mean it wasn't really just a flavor food? And I'm like, nope. <laughs> they're like, whoa. You know, Surprising. because we're just taught that, you know, these things just kind of magically appear in the grocery store. You know, and boom, there they are, and we can use them to flavor food. And then people are like, so you mean herbs are the same thing in the grocery store? Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like just a, a cosmic shift. So my food could be medicinal and healthy? Wow. Yeah. You know, and so that's like, that's also where I think of like evidence-based, because it's like, that's the oldest evidence in the world. Yes. People have been, yeah. you know... I mean, we even found the Neanderthal frozen man with his medicine bag. Mm-hmm, right. And he had, you know, I uh, don't remember exactly what the herbs were at this point, but they were for treating wounds and making food, pres- you know, be preserved longer. And, you know, it's like he he felt he it was important enough to carry that around with him. Yeah. And it's kind of, you know, I just think that's like the coolest evidence in the world or uh, Indian culture, Greek culture, Native American, indigenous cultures. I mean, they all have these really great and rich traditions. And if we're not careful, they're going to, we're going to lose it. And when you lose something like that, I'm not sure you can always get it back in a way right. that's authentic and not with some twist from some guru saying, oh yeah, drink this, you know, whatever concoction and your life is better now. So it's, I'm always afraid of losing stuff. So I try to, every country I go to, I try to buy regional herbal books or talk to old women who are, you know, selling herbs in stalls, talk to, you know, older men who, you know, in the, the big hibiscus tents in Egypt and say, Hey, what are you doing with this? And what are you doing with that? And usually, I mean, I'm a total goober. So Usually when I start talking about herbs with people who know herbs from another country, it's like we're the same person. Yes. They're like, sit, talk. Wow. Wait, you use that for that? What is wrong with you Americans? Not only do you have George (laughs) Bush in office and you're now doing this, you know, and I'm like, no, 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 no. Don't play me for George Bush. Let's talk about this. (laughs) And that's like, that's like a paraphrase of a real conversation. I was like, you know, why is this? And what do you mean you do that with that? And Every day can be a learning experience, but if we lose that, 
that connection yeah. and that communication. Like, I just think of, besides all the atrocities that go on in the world, what other traditions are we losing? Traditions in taking care of children, traditions in family, traditions in medicine and healing and culture and art. We lose all of that, and it erodes away every, you know, every time something happens. And if we lose that, I really get fearful that we can't get it back. So I always try to, like... Yeah, that's one of those areas of herbalism that, at least in my experience, has been almost a sticky area. Like, I grew up in an area where there was a lot of adversity between the Native American population, and they wanted to hold on to their culture, which I fully respect. And it was almost like they wanted to share it with the white people, myself being one of them, and yet they didn't because the white people had taken so much. It's almost like a push-pull, I guess. Yeah. Well, I, you know, and I think I think that's legitimate, right? Because mm-hmm. it's it almost is. like every time it we is. take from another, you know, culture for healing, not... Uh, I, all right, I'm just generalizing because I don't okay. always have the intellectual ability to do all the wordy stuff. But the reality is when we sometimes when we from a certain culture, take from another culture. We turn it into a bankable thing. Yeah. And And I think that's exactly what they were worried about, which I completely respect. I mean. Absolutely. Yeah. At the same time, I mean, being, you know, a white American girl, there's part of me that's like, well, where is my culture? It's back in the old country Oh, and you have to go back several centuries because the medicine that my people used was pretty much obliterated when Christianity took over. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. many, <laughs> so many invaders throughout Europe. So, so many cultures many, yeah. were lost. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I completely agree. And the reality is, is that we have to try to do it in a way that's respectful, but that doesn't pirate and doesn't steal and doesn't marginalize. And sometimes that can be really hard because we get so excited as herbalists. I think sometimes to share everything that we've learned and to spread the word that we sometimes forget that there's, there's a whole tradition out there besides use this flower to make this tea. Right. There's a whole thought process and there's a whole family story and that we have to try to be as respectful as possible to that. Right. And there's a real connection with the plants. Yeah. We don't want to Absolutely. do cultural appropriation, but at the same time, we need to recognize we are in a global community now. And we, in order to survive as a people, have to learn from each other. We just can't take credit for other people's discoveries. We have to be thoughtful. That's probably the thing to keep in mind. Absolutely. That's a great way of, of uh, putting it. Well, Being thoughtful. Yeah. I'm going to thoughtfully end this segment and thank you for being on the show with us. It's been a great conversation. Um, I want to remind our listeners that if you want more information, links, and resources that we mentioned on this program, check out our show notes on realherbalismradio.com and you can sign up for our free newsletter, which includes 
um, links to some of the things that Demetra has talked about on this show. We also have recipes, how-tos, and our own eBooks. So please make sure that you take a look at our website, thepracticalherbalist.com. Follow us on Facebook, Pinterest, and our conversations on Twitter. Now it's time for Herbalism and Homesteading News. This first article is from Healthy Cures, and this was an article that I was sent um, on my news feed on Facebook. The article is, Scientists from Canada Discover a Plant That Kills Cancer Cells in 48 Hours. There's no byline. We don't know who wrote it. Uh, I first saw that and thought, oh, great, clickbait. But I was curious, and so I checked it out and then had to do quite a bit of research in order to find out if it was an actual article or something that was just made up, which we often see, and ran into this some information that the University of Windsor up in Canada actually was undertaking a study on dandelion in order to treat uh, the uh, hematomic cancers like leukemia. And that was that was brand new to me. Yeah, it's brilliant. They started this study, I think it was about a year ago. Yeah, February 2015. <clears throat> yeah, so we should hopefully see some results sometime in 2016. Mm-hmm. And it's called the Dandelion Root Project. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. We'll include links on our show notes. But the, the way that it, they actually started it, despite what the news is saying, uh, is that they had a study that was published in 2011 in Evidence-Based Complementary and Alternative Medicine Journal. Mm-hmm. And the title of that is The Efficacy of Dandelion Root Extract in Inducing Apoptosis in oh my goodness, Drug-Resistant Human Melanoma Cells. So that was the beginning of it. And with this particular one, the skin cells, the skin cancer cells are chemo-resistant, and they're really, really difficult to treat. They found that in this study that within a 48-hour period in a Petri dish, mind you, with the superb conditions that you can have in the lab, that it did attack and kill the uh, melanoma cells and did not have an effect on the healthy normal cells, which is astonishing. As far as cancer is concerned, it is astonishing. Cancer is the perfect masquerader. Yeah. That's how it survives. You know, it starts out as one of our regular cells and then mutates. So it's really great as uh, pretending that it's still a regular cell, Mm -hmm. a cancer killing cell. So this was huge news. And in the University of Windsor, they had um, one of their fellow workers got leukemia and struggled for over three years with it and unfortunately passed. And pardon me, it spurred the faculty to um, take a look at some of the other studies. There's, there isn't really any cultural use for cancer, uh, treating cancer with dandelion that I know of. So it really is a shot in the dark. Yeah, it is. I mean, they've talked about dandelion being used in like old English stuff to get rid of spots on the skin, which when we translate it down to modern herbalism, Mm -hmm. we think of that as meaning freckles. Freckles or... It's possible that they were using it to remove melanomas. Yeah, absolutely. But we don't, you know... Cancer wasn't really exactly diagnosed in 1500. No, but I mean, the ancient Egyptians (laughs) talked about uh, breast cancer back, you know, way Mm -hmm. back when they were building the pyramids and their um, graphic description included the the ending phrase of there is no treatment. 
Right. So that it's been a plague upon humanity for right, you know, thousands and thousands of years. But yeah, to, to have something like this just kind of come out of nowhere is fantastic. And the human trials will determine whether it can work outside of the petri dish and on a different type of cancer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's exciting news in terms of herbalism and dandelion root. I think one of the big takeaways for us right now while we're waiting for the study to be completed and published is clickbait, even though it often seems like it's based on nothing or it's totally Mm -hmm. made up, a complete fiction. Yeah. A lot of times it actually is based in something real. You just need to take the time to actually look at further than the article itself. Yeah. They, they take something wonderful and rich, you know, like a, uh, this beautiful herbal extract and basically turn it into Kool-Aid news Kool-Aid by the time they're done Mm -hmm. mutilating it. There was a study that you had found Patrick that they, they said, but something like, um, scientists have the cure for cancer. Oh, here it is. Uh, scientists, uh, let's see, healthy cures is from healthy cures. Cancer is finally cured in Canada, but Big Pharma has no interest. Is that <laughs> like, also a dandelion root? It's, or? It looks like it's it's based on the same kind of thing. You know, they're making they're making this big to do out of. Well, they're making yeah. they're extrapolating. They are, you know, and what irresponsible company would say, okay, we're just starting the trial, so now I'm going to put out this this uh, right. drug and and patent it and try to shut it down or what? Come on. Right. Please. That's just, it's, it's speculation and paranoia. Mm-hmm. They're selling fear. And right. then that put, casts a very heavy shadow upon the herbal industry and upon medicine in general. We don't need that. Right. Well, that is, that's one of the things I find frustrating about those crazy titles is that a lot of times they're based on something that really, it's a, a long shot to come up with that title as having anything to do with the real study or the real way that that herb works. Mm-hmm. And then the result of it is that a lot of people read that, get hyped up over it, then realized it's crap. Mm-hmm. And then end up not believing in herbalism as if somehow it's the plants or the herbs or the people who are doing real herbalism that are at fault. Right. When in fact it's actually just some marketer in some little office somewhere who's trying to figure out how to get more people to his website. Yeah. We don't need more fear, anger, and misinformation in this world. We need more good information, more understanding, and and we need to work together more. Right. And it's those kind of article titles that do everybody a disservice. Right. Right. Herbalism 101. This is part of the show where Sue and Candace answer a listener question or teach you about an herbal definition or term covering basic to advanced herbal knowledge. If you would like the dirt on herbs, herbalism, or anything else related, you can send your question using our simple contact form at realherbalismradio.com slash herbalism101. If we choose your question for the show, we will send you a free PDF ebook, Natural Nutrition by the Practical Herbalist, currently available for $4.99 at the Practical Herbalist store. Here's Candace and Sue to discuss this show's Herbalism 101 topic. Okay. Today's question comes from Helena. Helena asks, when is the best time to harvest nettle? Candace, Sue? What a lovely, lovely question. I know, I know. I can't wait for nettle season. Spring is Spring. the time for the harvest. Yeah. And you can usually get in two, maybe three harvests, depending I've done three on your before. climate. 
Yeah, yeah, depending on how early your spring is. How wet it is. And how wet it is. Mm-hmm. If you're in a northern, cold, snowy climate like Minnesota, you might see only two harvests. Mm-hmm. But because, here, yeah. because what, it freezes over or what? No, because it Dry doesn't thaw. Fast. The ground won't Ooh. thaw until April to sometime in May usually. So that doesn't – nettle will pop up really fast there. And the first two harvests are going to be good. But once you get later into the year, you've had a lot of heat, a lot of humidity, and mm-hmm. you're going to start seeing those crystals in the nettle right. leaf that form. Sure. So the first – Yeah. So the first, you know, yeah. early. But here we get spring so early. It's like freaking March and there's nettle already popping up usually. Yeah. Yeah, so I look to make sure that my nettle that I'm harvesting has at least two rows of leaves because it'll go up, have a have a little layer of leaves, and then there'll be some stem and then some more leaves, at least two, if not three. And then clip that, leave, leave the first layer of leaves, and there you go. You come back in a couple of weeks, it's grown right back up again. Yeah. You can harvest it again. I, like yep. I said, I've had up to three harvests get... on a plant. Yeah, you can get actually quite a few. Yeah. And I think that the other important thing to take a look at is where you're harvesting. Yes, that I mean, is a big one. It's re- Nettle is, has a good goodly root system, and it'll take up toxins from the soil. If you've got a place where there's a septic tank or if you know there's an old building that might have lead that's running into the soil, it's very mineral rich. But it gets the minerals from the soil, and some of the some of that stuff in the soil is not very healthy. So, really, as with everything, know your plants and the the leaves. And when you taste them, and their spring fresh nettle leaves yeah. are a world of difference from mm-hmm. the extracts and from the dried leaves. Yep. I mean, I like the extracts and the dried leaves, but mm-hmm. the fresh leaves are actually like. Worth eating. Yeah, yeah, definitely. They, they can taste, they taste almost like seaweed. Like you take the fresh leaf and then you roll the top of it under so you're not getting the pricklies and crush it a little bit mm-hmm. and then yeah. make that noise when you eat. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I like them in fresh when you add them in. I've used them similar to how you use basil, throwing mm-hmm. them into like spaghetti sauces Pesto. or japchae. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. We got, got the, some recipes. Got a video. Woo-hoo. Yeah, we have recipe and a video. That was for, fun to make for job. Time. I was yeah. intimidated by that recipe at first. It looked complicated, but then as we were going mm-hmm. along, like, oh, well, this makes sense. Yeah, it's it actually fun. it looks so complicated because it's so many steps, but it's actually just prepare lots of things and then cook it, swap it all together. Yeah, and it was delicious. Yeah, we have a couple of other uh, like there's a hazelnut pesto mm-hmm. nettle recipe on there that's really delicious and very simple you yeah. got a blender then you got it going yeah and it's easy to dry just hang it upside down mm-hmm. so, and you can freeze it and you can freeze it, it quite freezes well actually surprisingly well and it's still it's not quite when you take it out of the freezer if you just stuck it in like you do ba- i stick it in a bag like i stick basil in the freezer whole leaves mm-hmm. and like basil it loses a little bit of its light brightness that it the has color. when it's completely uh-huh. fresh, or oh, the flavor isn't quite as light and bright as the as the fresh nettle mm-hmm. is because the freezing broke it down a little, a bit. little bit, mm-hmm. yeah. But just like basil, it still retains a majority of it. So yeah, it's, it's got a good flavor, and it's worthwhile to put it in the freezer for a while because you have your mm-hmm. tomatoes coming in summer when the nettle's done. You make yeah. yourself your fresh tomato sauce, throw your nettle in there to make your lasagna. Mm-hmm. It's delicious, and it, it just fortifies you. It's it's so rich in minerals. 
yep. and vitamins. It's it's a worthwhile endeavor, and and we applaud you, Helena. Yep. Go out there, harvest that nettle. Be careful where you're harvesting it from. Early spring. Early spring. Make sure that you're harvesting it uh, respectfully so that it will be able to come back because it's not just food for us. It's food for wildlife as well. Yep. And and you've got a lifelong relationship with a wonderful healing plant. The statements made about herbs and products on this podcast have not been evaluated by the United States Food and Drug Administration, FDA. They're not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. All information provided on this podcast or any affiliated websites is for informational purposes only and is not intended as a substitute for advice from your physician or other healthcare professional. You should not use the information on this podcast and its affiliated websites for a diagnosis or treatment of any health problem. Always consult with healthcare professional before starting any new vitamins, supplements, diet, or exercise program before taking any medication or if you have or suspect you might have a health problem. Any testimonials, questions, or case studies are based on individual results and do not constitute a guarantee that you will achieve the same results.